Welcome to Season 2 of the Psychology in Action podcast. During Season 2, we will be interviewing graduate students in psychology as they finish up their research projects in grad school and reflect on their time throughout grad school and lessons learned. And for our first guest, we have John Guasi Marrera, a PhD student at UCLA who works with Dr. Jen Silvers on studies of emotion development and emotion regulation. On today's episode, we discussed his recent research Humans theoretically have a bunch of different strategies they can use to regulate their feelings and their emotions. Um, however, the literature has predominantly focused on like a subset of them. Um, and that's for good reason. Uh, and we can get into that too, if that's, if that's interesting. Um, but that means that some other strategies have been relatively overlooked. And we got to a point where we couldn't find any measures that we really liked. What he wants to see in the future of science and in particular, the science of psychology that's something that we can kind of change about academia. Mm. Um, I think academia, like the concept is really wonderful and there are places that are really wonderful, but it would also be naive to not acknowledge, you know, in, re in recent years this stuff has come out that like there are problems, like there are any industry. And I think that um, I've talked to people about this who are really kind of like uh, upset about the fact that they might not be able to compensate their kind of like uh, men, mentees for their labor the way they should be and so I thought you know I've thought of one solution is you can use publicly available data and it doesn't mean that you don't run your own studies um, mm -hmm. or get new data it just means that maybe instead of running like 10 you run eight or nine and then you can pay a grad student for a year or like an undergrad for a year and doing your part um, I think that's one way to do it and a lot of other topics to me as a developmentalist um, trained in developmental psych like that's an inherently developmental question, right? Hmm. But then I also think that um, there's still possibility for change in adulthood. I think adults are more flexible than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. It's not that I think we're inflexible. It's that like kids and teens are insanely flexible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and they kind of have to be. So without further ado, here's John. talk about science i guess maybe we should talk about science yeah too. we can talk about science <laughs> science is probably important I, I would think so i'd hope so at least yeah. given what we do yeah. um well i guess go ahead and, and like sort of we've introduced you but go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody sure i am john guasi Moreira. i'm a 60 year i had to pause for a second 60 year yeah. doctoral student <laughs> and the ucla psych area or psych department i work in the developmental area primarily with jennifer silvers and i'm gonna be wrapping up in november and starting a postdoc in march Starting That's a postdoc, you already know where you're postdocing. I am, yeah. Are you allowed to share? I am allowed to share. Uh, I am going to be postdocing with Carolyn Parkinson in the social area, um, which is exciting. It's, I'm pretty sure it's it's fine. Uh, like I got the NSF SPE postdoc, and I saw people announce it on Twitter. Uh -huh. Although I've heard that the NSF takes a while to get the official letter. Mm. So I think once the program director recommends you, yeah, it's 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 a I've heard it's like a done deal and it's going to happen, but I haven't like, I mean, I guess this is the announcement. We'll see how many yeah, people Not after listen. they hear this. I don't know. They might take it back. Oh, no. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> well, that's, that's exciting. So we get to keep you at UCLA a bit longer. Yeah, I was sad great. I was going to have to like say goodbye to you soon. No, I, I love the department. Um, I love UCLA. I love LA and I'm excited to hang out. And it just so happened that uh, I think of all the people in academia, Carolyn was... Uh, like my top choice really so it just worked out that she was here that's awesome which is great that's so cool yeah. uh well so th let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing to this point and then i really want to hear about what you sort of envision being next for you yeah sure um 
my you know i've followed a lot of the work that you've been doing and it's there's so much of it out there already so it's like hard to hone in on one specific thing but one of the more recent things that um, you had been working on was really developing an understanding of like how different emotion regulation strategies sort of relate to mental health profiles and sort of like how different emotion regulation strategies could sort of like be cleanly separated from each other yeah yeah that's a study that i remember actually you and i (laughs) had drinks at a bar that is now closed unfortunately i saw that i'm so disappointed really bummer uh for any angelinos listening brew house on the west side was like a great great beer bar and it's it's been shuttered due to due to the pandemic but um this is a talk that we had like several years ago where i wanted to um i was interested in doing kind of like a taxonomies of emotion regulation study um and oddly enough like there aren't a lot of taxonomical like formal taxonomical structures in psychology or at least they aren't widely adopted the way that they are in other fields Mm. and i chalked that up to this being a young you know this is a very young science and that's it's that seems totally normal um but I know, like, the most recent one that I was aware of, and I, and I could be missing something, was uh, Laura Bronstein-Martin. I believe that's the second part of her last name. Was a grad, formerly a grad student of Kevin Oxner at Columbia, and she came out with a theory paper in SCAN, so, Social, Cognitive, and Affective Neuroscience, the, the journal, where she laid out, like, a, she did, like, a wonderful synthesis of the literature and laid out a theoretically-based taxonomy of emotion regulation strategies. Hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to... Kind of follow in that in those footsteps and uh humans theoretically have a bunch of different strategies they can use to regulate their feelings and their emotions um however the literature has predominantly focused on like a subset of them um and that's for good reason uh and we can get into that too if that's if that's interesting um but that means that some other strategies have been relatively overlooked and we got to a point where we couldn't find any measures that we really liked um of these strategies and and so we decided to kind of develop novel, at least self-report measures of the tendency to use some of these questionnaires. And that's another, I say tendency because uh, the literature is, can be a little messy with respect to this in so far that um, a lot of people will use, say, like the classic emotion regulation questionnaire, Gross right. and John. Um, and you know, my lab, or our lab, I shouldn't say my lab, it's Jen's lab. (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 you know, some people could beg to differ given the the number of papers I've seen come from you in the last six years. (laughs) Oh, no, you're too generous. Um, No, it is, I will also clarify that, Jen, it's your lab. (laughs) Um, Hi, Jen. uh, You know, but people will use that measure and uh, sometimes it'll be unspecified whether they mean, you know, that that measure maps onto you know, it being one's ability to regulate their emotions or their tendency, meaning like how often or frequency that they do it. Um, we think it's a measure of frequency and, and sure enough, the same people from the same group that initially developed that measure have come out with uh, like uh, a questionnaire that better tap, that better taps ability. So, hmm. you know, we decided to focus on tendency because that's what most of the literature has done or like at least an hour kind of view and an hour interpretation of it. Um, so you have all these people using all of these different tasks that previously have existed to measure emotion regulation, but either they're not putting them all together at the same time, mm. or they're using outdated measures, or measures that aren't necessarily outdated, but it's just kind of, that's all that we've known to this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't, and, and I'll follow on there, I wouldn't say that they're outdated, just that, you know, 
I think that the we really know a lot about the ERQ because so many people have used it and there's been a ton of different psychometric investigations and some mm-hmm. of these you know it's kind of like a chicken and egg a chicken or an egg thing but I I think that most of these other studies haven't been studied because re- reappraisal and suppression are so popular and are so clinically relevant and they're um, kind of straight relatively straightforward to define mm. I think or to also ask about or to test in a like in a lab setting with a computer task where it's as hard to do that with something the strategy like situation selection like mm-hmm. I've talked to Jen, my advisor, and another grad student in the area who's a, clo- a clo- close collaborator and friend, Razi Asahi, mm-hmm. and we're, we're both like, how do you measure this like in a, in a computerized task too, which is what you would, you know, uh, if you were going to do that in the scanner or if you wanted to do, um, get like a measure of capacity with that, that's one way you could do it. So, um, so yeah, like there hadn't been, uh, there just hadn't been like a lot of measures that we thought, um, I don't want to say that they were bad. Like, I don't want to dunk on anyone. Uh, and that's not the case. It was more so just that, like, that we, what we wanted to do is we wanted to just take a stab at coming up with some of those measures self, uh, in a self-report uh, modality from scratch and validating mm-hmm. them with um, tools that were previously kind of unaccessible and that the software wasn't easy to use or that it just, you know, only a couple of people did research on it. Um and therefore, they couldn't teach it to students. It was hard for hard, totally. hard folks to learn. And so, um, so it like self reinforces here because it's, if it's hard yeah. to teach to new people, then for new people to research it effectively and, and develop their own understanding, yeah. it's going to get pretty challenging. Yeah, and that's and and that's of course my understanding of how I think uh, you know that's played out over the. I mean, a lot of this stuff tra- transpired before I was born. Yeah, <laughs> so it's just um, kind of what I picked up. But um, so. And, and then the other thing is we wanted to create these measures in kind of the framework of the ERQ. So use a lot of the wording and, syntact, uh, and syntactical structure, pardon me, that um, the ERQ uses because it's so widely used. I think we looked it up. It's been used like, I don't know, like 9,000 or 10,000 oh times. Oh, my goodness. Maybe it's less. Maybe it's like it's in the it's in the preprint that we have. Um, yeah. I think I referenced it. So and your your version of the ERQ is going to be used 10,000 times. I hope so. Um, that would be cool. That would be cool if only to say that you did something that like a lot of people used and was helpful to the, to the broader scientific community, which is kind of what, um, you know, that's just all I want. I just want to be um, like a helpful part of the community. And it's very nice of you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's cool. It, like doing, doing science is cool. And, you know, having people say like, oh, this was helpful, you know, as I was doing my science, like that's, that's the ultimate reward. So yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. Um, and I hope, and I hope I can get there. Um, so, Along the course of, of, of making these measures, we came up with, uh, like I became interested in understanding whether individual differences in these different strategies um, could be organized in a kind of like a, a course type, typology. And I was mm. partly inspired by a paper that came out in Nature Human Behavior. It's actually, I think, a bunch of bioengineers. Everyone except one author is a bioengineer. <laughs> at Northwestern and then uh, Bill Ravel, I think that's how you say his last name. Mm. So, who's a personality guy up at Northwestern. So, you know, I, I drifted away f- from the taxonomy bit, and that's not something that I've abandoned. It's just, um, as what happens in science, you just kind of, like, have other questions that pop up along the, along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's been a little bit of a circuitous path to get back to that particular question, but along the way, there's been a ton of stuff that is at least as rewarding to work yeah. on. And so at a certain point, you, you're 
you're choosing between really good options here yeah. and, and then you kind of just go where your heart takes you that's good for sure and that was a really fun paper to work on um it's currently under review tbd yeah. we'll see how Not it's on received yeah um twitter seemed to like it my girlfriend was like oh you're twitter famous your thread got 200 you know likes or something yeah. <laughs> i mean in science twitter famous basically means like do you have more than 80 likes on a tweet or do you have over like <laughs> there's like the second level where you have like the j van babels and they're, they're oh, like goodness, the two yeah. you know the the average tweet is like the six thousands but you yeah. know but you know for for a grad student i mean yes 200 likes that's twitter famous among most <laughs> people you know Eight, eight likes for me when I like tweet out of, like something about like oh I read this paper and I thought it was cool like if I get a I'm like yes that's what I need to do more of you know so 200 man that's pretty good <laughs> I was uh, really like really nervous because I posted it I was going to bed I posted the thread in bed <laughs> at like 2 a.m. on a Saturday or something um, and I was like I'll do it now and then I don't know how many people will see this and who knows how the algorithm is going to sort stuff that was totally. posted at a certain time and um, it was i had a lot of like kind words from people um yeah. which was nice and i'm i'm excited to see how that paper does in review how to get you know like what kind of constructive or critical feedback it gets yeah uh, my one fear for that paper is that i don't want people to think i'm trying to make like a buzzfeed quiz what mm. what regulator type are you yeah um, well because subtyping is like part of the paper right it's like dividing different types of like likelihood that you use certain types of emotion regu regulation strategies was like differentiating people into these subclusters, right? Yeah. And so like to some extent like when, anytime you do something that's like clustering like this, it's like so which type are you and which type are you? Yeah. Um and it sounds like that's not quite what you're hoping for out of this. No, I and and like I will say I was terrified when I started this. Hmm. Um not because I didn't, you know, like I think there's I'll, you know, I'll get in a minute to kind of what I think this typology represents, but um, at least statistically, if you ask for three clusters, you are getting back three clusters, whether <laughs> whether three mm. exist or not. Mm. So that's like, like scary uh, in terms of like, is this a false positive, you know, but we did it in, it was like five or six samples. We had five samples where we also correlated it to well-being metrics and then a sixth sample where we looked at the test, retest, re reliability of the kind of cluster assignment. And we tried to do some simulations where we sim data from, you know, without any clustering structure and and try to see how often we, you know, given like, I don't know, 5,000 draws, I forget exactly what it was, 5,000 mm -hmm. or 10,000 draws, how often uh, would you expect to see our pattern of clusters just, just kind of do the chance under this, under this hypothesis that there's no, under this null that there's no clustering structure. Um, and even now after like, you know, six samples 1500 people I'm like oh, i should have done this in like 200 <laughs> i need to do this in 200,000 people yeah. or whatever these those obscenely large in a good way um ends that those personality studies have because this this is an individual difference of study so and that's not to like take the wind out of the sails of the current work right it just means that like like anything with science this is a first step and we have to follow it up no i mean that's what that's what grants are for right is you uh mm. now now you're just you're just selling yourself already to the nih and to the nsf right now as you describe this like this is really cool and it's super helpful and great and it's not perfect so let's make it better where's the money yeah you know? <laughs> yeah that will <laughs> we'll see how that goes <laughs> Um, you have to keep this posted. <laughs> yeah. I've done a little bit, you know, like applying for fellowships and everything, but never like a, 
Well, and I think, like, smaller seed grants Mm -hmm. as well for, like, you know, 5K from, like, the APA or, like, a K from the APF or something. So, so it's exciting. I, you know, I don't think that, like, the regulatory types or whatever we want to call them... Um, our gospel. Mm. Uh, I had a really talk, really good talk with Bruce Doré about this, who's now an assistant professor, I believe, of marketing at McGill. Mm. He was previously a graduate student in Kevin Oxner's lab, and, and my advisor was also a graduate student with him in the same lab. And the way he described it, I really like it. Um, and it sounds harsh, uh, but I don't think it's harsh. Like He said it's a useful fiction, those types. And mm. I, I kind of agree with him in that the way that I think of these types is that really there's just this, you know, I, I measured out, I measured five strategies in this paper, so we'll go with five. There's really this five-dimensional space, and you can live anywhere on the space uh, according to, you know, your score on the, um, on the questionnaire, and there's obviously stuff with measurement error, and so let's just kind of put that aside for the time being. And so I think the idea is it's not that these are inherently categorical differences mm-hmm. between people. They do live on continua. I think it's just that what I think is more likely is that people tend to kind of coalesce around certain kind of mm-hmm. hotspots or, or certain bits of real estate in that 5D yeah. space. And we can call them clusters um, without, I don't know if this is the right use of the term, like without essentializing them as natural kinds, yeah. right? And I still think that that's okay to do. And I think that, um, to my knowledge, there are like similar, ex- there may be similar examples of that mm. in... Uh, in other areas of science. I think of like an astronomy, you know, like the life cycle of a star yeah. or something, right? Um, where it's just, again, to my knowledge, and if there are any physics listeners, please, you can DM me. I don't think me. we have any physics. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you are a physics listener, I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> if you know anything about this, if you took a course or if you kind of double majored or whatever, like, and I'm wrong, don't, don't hesitate to let me have it. But, um, you know, like the life stage of a star, right? There are very clear categories, but it's all a smooth, gradual change. Hmm. Um, and of course, when you look at the beginning and the end, they look categorically different, but um, you still, you know, like the features that they kind of used to create these, that that, that they used to create and designate these distinctions, um, to my knowledge, uh, kind of occur on a continuum, right? Hmm. So it's not conceptually at a high level dissimilar to what I'm trying to argue here but I, I am also open for like robust discussion and yeah. um, that's that's like good for science you know well, so one of the things I've always really loved about your work is it seems like you synthesize information from a lot of different disciplines I remember like several years ago maybe earlier on in your um, in your graduate career there was a paper that was drawing from I think like economics and financial modeling there's often crosstalk from economics to psychology, but mm-hmm. not quite in the way that you were doing it. And sort of as you're thinking about big problems of like how to deal with data clustering like this, thinking about, well, how do we do it with the stars? I mean, where do you come <laughs> up with this stuff? I, you know, I, for a while in undergrad, I was trying to figure out whether I was going to double major in like molecular and cell biology whether I should double major in integrative biology. I went to the University of Illinois for my my undergrad, and those were the the, the, the bio there was split into two. Uh-huh. Whether I was going to double major in anthropology and what concentration I could pick because yeah. I thought that bio was really interesting, but also sociocultural. Um, 
could I try to get like a double minor in CS and statistics, which is what they yeah. had there, and that I was like had zero statistical and CS aptitude in undergrad. So that's that hard to believe, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's you pretty know, surprising. You know, my dad is an electrical engineer by training. He's in consulting now. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is where I'm like, this makes sense. Cause gr- because growing up, I was not good at math or any of that kind of stuff or science for that matter. It wasn't mm. until I was a senior in high school. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Yeah. And I didn't think and I thought of psych as a social science. Like they, they, they kind of at least in Illinois and, you know, in the area I grew up in, they really kind of marketed that hard versus social science um, divide pretty rigidly. Mm. Uh, and I think that's detrimental because science is a method, not a topic. Um, mm. Say more about what you mean by that. I think that's an interesting point. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I just think that science is a method of investigation to learn about the natural world that, you know, is self-correcting and hopefully over like a long enough event horizon will help uncover fundamental truths about existence. I'm in like a summer journal club about, and I, I hope that didn't sound snooty. No. <laughs> like it, two it pie was, in the sky. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like what what time is it? It's like ten ten oh nine on a Thursday. I'm like sipping my coffee still. <laughs> and John's talking about fundamental truths of the universe, and I'm like, dude, oh, man. Th- this is a beautiful mind at work right here. Oh, <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you. Um, and so it's it's the so it's a method of investigation. Oh, I I remember the point I was gonna say when I talk about truths. Uh, I'm in as a side note. I'm in like a causal. Uh, statistic or causal inference like uh, journal club where we read ca- causal inference papers and discuss them over Zoom over the summer. That's cool. It is super cool and also terrifying because I think there's uh, a gentleman in philosophy in that club, and I'm like, nothing is real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like if you think about like what is, pre- I think he was saying, I'm probably going to butcher it because he said it really well, and, and this is not my area of expertise. But one interpretation of probability is like when we don't. You know, it's just like uncertainty. But mm. if everything has a causal link, if we think that cause and effect is real, uh, at some point you can all trace it back to one kind of like cause, or you can trace every cause back. And at that point, there's no uncertainty, so there's no reason point for probability. So our statistics are, you know, I'm I am catastrophizing, but <laughs> <laughs> like so that there's, was... no, there's no point of probability if we could understand all of the causal links, but. I think what I'm hearing you say is until we're actually at this total perfect understanding of how everything works, probability is the best we've got. Uh, that was my takeaway from the journal club, and I'm, I'm not like a statistician or a quantitative psychologist by training. Um, and again, I'm probably butchering his very, I think his name was Michael, I forget his last name. Um, I'm, I'm probably like butchering it, but uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely like a, like, is this even real kind of <laughs> thing we were we were dealing with so i was like oh man um so but yeah so i think science is is obviously method and then the topic is just you know one of the things i wanted to ask you about this study sort of going back Mm -hmm. to that for a moment yeah yeah. um you know as, as i was reading it as a clinician in training um i found it really interesting to think about sort of first of all clustering people based on emotion regulation strategies that they currently use and based on what maybe they don't use i mean that's Mm -hmm. essentially what's going on in my head as a cbt therapist all the time um so it it seems directly relevant and one of the questions i was wondering about and i basically just want you to pontificate about this because you have no data on it yet (laughs) um but i'm just curious um about this you know we have this clustering of of people into different like tendencies of emotion regulation strategies and what I would really want to know as a clinician is like, what are the stickier 
clusters to be in. And by stickier, I mean like what's harder to get somebody into or out of. Yeah. Oh, um, very of interesting. Of those different types of states, because they were differentially related to well-being, and yeah. I would imagine some of them might be easier to sort of like you know join the club, join membership. I'm like. Uh, an emotional suppressor club, yeah. right? Compared to like other ones where maybe like getting into or out of that cluster is more of a heavy lift. Uh, yeah. I'm curious about that. That's really interesting. I mean, like, you know, hopefully I will get a chance to, in the sense that hopefully at one point I'll get a faculty job and can explore yeah. these more in depth because <laughs> there's no way I can do all, you know, everything. You hear that hiring committees? Over the next <laughs> two years. But I think... Um, you know, we want to do like a developmental investigation and see at what age can you begin to sort um, folks into these clusters. How? Um, oh, and I'll also point out that there's there's probably more validation that needs to go into making sure that these are like bona fide or legitimate things. So I'll just say, assuming that that pans out, I'll acknowledge that. Um, I think seeing at what age people go into these clusters, at what you know, uh, what's the what's the flexibility. Of going in and out of one, you know, over the course of development or over the course of the lifespan as well. I think, um, as a proxy, the I think it was Gerlach is the is the first author of that Nature Human Behavior paper. They found that that didn't really didn't really change with age their clusters. Hmm. Um, and so, if we conceptualize emotion regulation as kind of a stable trait, um, maybe up, you know, maybe as you kind of reach adulthood, it might be harder to kind of push you into one hmm. or push you out of one. But it may be that you know. If you kind of think of this as like a like a little transition matrix or something that maybe like certain tr transitions are more likely than others hmm. um and then i think there's also the idea of there's that there's that chicken and egg thing of if you're looking at it at the angle of psychopathology um is the transition you know is any kind of tra tra transition you're seeing is it caused by the psychopathology or did it precipitate it and that's another mm. thing too that i think um psychopathology I, so I'm not I'm not up to date with it, but I do remember reading. You know, I worked in a clinical lab in undergrad. I remember reading a lot of like uh, kind of the cascading effects of, of psychopathology and mm -hmm. it kind of being this this feedback loop. Um, uh, and at some point, I guess like from a practical perspective, the chicken and egg question may may not be. I guess if your work is prevention, it's it's <laughs> no, just kidding. It's highly relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if your work is prevention, if you've um, got somebody in a state of health, like there is a ton of work to be done around like how do we keep that stable, right? Yeah, yeah. For um, sure. Just that, like just like you're saying, um, and then there's also you know there, it, it was really interesting to me to like read, for instance, you know, one of the states is is about. Predominantly emotion suppression as a as a regulation mm. tactic, right? yeah. and like there are entire therapies developed around essentially getting people to stop suppressing emotions, right? Yeah. I mean, acceptance and commitment therapy and, and other sort of like third wave CBT approaches, yeah. uh, dialectical behavior therapy incorporates this a lot as well. Is you know this whole idea that like suppressing emotions is a short term strategy to regulate emotions yeah. that oftentimes is associated with poorer long term health, um, and. There are, there are lots of different um, strategies that you studied there. There were, I think, five. Um, and it would just be really interesting to see sort of like, if we wanted to get somebody from this cluster to that cluster, or would it have to go through from this cluster through this cluster to that yeah. cluster? Like, how do we how do we get people into the healthy cluster? Yeah, I, it's, it's so interesting. So I think like having, you know, having done what I just talked about, like yeah. learning more about, because to me as a developmentalist, um, trained in developmental psych, like that's an inherently 
developmental question, right? Hmm. But then I also think that um, there's still possibility for change in adulthood. I think adults are more flexible than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. It's not that I think we're inflexible. It's that, like, kids and teens are insanely flexible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And they kind of have to be. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm reminded of Brian Denny's work that has looked at kind of... He's looked at uh, reappraisal training, you know, for, like, how do you beef up the use of, of cognitive reappraisal, which is, uh -huh. like, um, often billed as a little bit of a panacea, but that's not quite quite true um, as, a, as a regulation strategy. And he has really promising stuff. I think he's also might have a paper, it's either a review paper, I don't think it's an empirical paper, where he looks at polyregulation just to teach people to use different strategies because there is no one-size-fits-all, which is closely related to, you know, the stuff that um, I have in that, like, uh, that I have in that paper. I think, you know, you'd really have to look at some of his studies and see what's going on there to try to get people to change. Um, and then my, I think the other value in the in in my paper, which is, which is currently preprint, um, is seeing like the the impact of individual strategies mm. right so if you see that oh reappraisal and distraction in opposite ways are really impactful maybe you know you can't get someone from one group into the other from one type into the other all at all at once uh maybe it's about um just trying to focus on on one and that'll go a long way too mm -hmm. um so i think i think that's something yeah but it's yeah. it's also you know, weird to talk to a clinician and say, <laughs> in the and say, like, oh, I guess I conceptualize them as being stable individual differences, <laughs> and like, if they weren't, then that would undermine the premise of having a typology in the first place. And so, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what the you know. I've just you know, like I said, pure. Uh, I think as you said, pure conjecture at this point, but very very fun to think about and also could have like promised to help people um it feels weird to think that your work might do that i think that's why people like that's why i think a lot of people get into science mm. um uh and myself included it's not the sole reason but that's a reason that it could help people but then when you think that like oh your work is gonna is gonna help you're like oh but is, is it good enough like is it <laughs> my work no like <laughs> it's not it's not there yet it's not ready um <laughs> I, I totally I totally hear what you're saying here where it's like maybe like the life cycle of a grad student oftentimes has this period of like who am I helping with this work beyond my own like curiosity yeah and it's cool to think that like oh wait like actually like if you do something that's good enough like it actually can have that kind of an impact like it and, and maybe it's not about being good or bad but like something where you hit the gold mine right like yeah. if it's true for instance that these states like really do accurately characterize individual yeah. differences in a meaningful and robust way like that really could impact the way that we as For clinicians sure, yeah. do our work and and then if we are taking that information into account when we're doing our work then like you've cascading effects on like a yeah. ton of people's lives and that's like one of the one of the huge draws to science i think is like the potential to do something with such big cascading effects yeah and also i hear what you're saying too where like the life cycle of a grad student often involves this sort of like, oh, I hope somebody yeah. cares about this sometime. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it. Uh, oh man, I guess it is. It is comforting also to know that it's it. It doesn't always feel this way, um, and maybe this isn't the best descriptor, but it kind of is a team effort in the sense that like no single study, or even the breakthroughs are often built on like years or decades or sometimes yeah. even centuries of work, and that. Uh, 
you know, you're just kind of passing the baton to someone else to say, hey, I came up with this thing, it's interesting, and um, I don't have expertise in, in, in making, in, you know, I have expertise in maybe trying trying to continue to validate it and see if it's a legit thing, which is something that, you know, I still have to do, or have, have to continue to do. We started in the, in the paper, obviously. Um, but when we kind of pass the baton uh, to kind of other folks who, who, who can get it, who can marshal it in a way that, to see if it can, you know, like help people or be applied in um, in a clinical in, in a clinical setting or in a non-clinical but like um, or in a non-clinical setting that helps promote behavior change like food cravings when people come to college or something mm. or like an adolescence totally um, which which may have a clinical bend but sometimes could also be just trying to for that example trying to get people to eat healthier yeah it, and what you're really describing here is just this huge benefit of everybody having their own specializations and so like yeah. when everybody mm, yeah. we have lots of specialization and you can effectively communicate from one to the other like that is that is where the where the juice is and i think that's what's been so cool is that like you it seems like you you sit sort of like you have your specialized areas within like development of social cognition right and also developmental neuroscience which we haven't even talked about really um but you talk about these things in a way where the hope is to actually pass that baton and not to stay siloed. And I think yeah. that that's like, that's a really cool place to be sitting for sure. Yeah. And even before all of that, like make sure that we have, that this is a legitimate signal. Yeah. <laughs> I remember we had someone come into dev forum a couple years ago, which is the weekly meeting in the fall and spring or yeah, in the fall and spring quarters where we get either speakers from the department or the area or like outside the department to give talks. We had Zach Horn, who was at Arizona State at the time? Now he's uh, in Scotland. It was a big, <laughs> big change of pace. <laughs> and I remember having a talk with him, and we were saying that you know, uh, it's like this kind of two-step approach, crudely, of trying to figure out is this signal or noise, especially from a statistical standpoint, like across several studies, is what I'm doing noise or, or signal, and then is that signal interesting or meaningful? Mm. Um, and so, and I often think about that, like, that's a very important thing for me to think about. And that, you know, often I think, uh, uh, comes before a lot of what you just talked about, hmm. um, as well, just to make sure, is this a legitimate finding? Yeah. Um, cause you don't want to waste anyone's time yeah. or money. <laughs> it's, it's one thing to waste your own time and money and doing something and then be like, <laughs> oh shoot, it's like not what I was hoping for. But it's another thing to like prematurely pass it off to other people and shout from the rooftops, like everybody needs to try this like check this cool thing out and then like they do and it's like uh-oh for sure yeah yeah Oof. yeah and it's and the and you've talked about incentive structures too and it's awkward because you kind of have to do that to get money or to get fellowships or to get attention or you yeah. know and maybe a cover letter you write to the journal uh i know one person who they said their advisor every cover letter wrote this is the best paper to come out of my lab in the <laughs> last 10 years this is my this is the best work I've done. I, I can't for every cover letter. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I've, and maybe that's what you have to do. You know, yeah. I've, I've never done that. I think this cover letter, this is probably at the, uh, was the most, I felt like this was the most comprehensive study I've ever done in grad yeah. school. And I made sure that that was reflected in the letter, but it is this, this delicate balance of not wanting to oversell, but not wanting to undersell. Totally. Um, and, and I think as my advisor would say, and it's always a helpful perspective from her that, if that's on your mind and you're consciously looking out for it, you're probably okay. Mm. Um, even mm -hmm. though it might not feel true <laughs> in the moment. Well, so one of the things you just mentioned about how this is like, I mean, it truly is a super comprehensive study. It's really a collection of studies. 
and it's not your dissertation. So <laughs> I would love to know what that's about and sort of like how you landed on like this career as a graduate student where you're going to graduate with, I don't know, 75,000 studies being, being <laughs> conducted by the time you're done. I mean, goodness. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a bit of a journey. Um, I actually came in undergrad wanting to go into psychiatry and embarrassingly, I didn't really know the model for doing research. Like I wanted to see clients slash patients and I also wanted to do research. Mm -hmm. And that was like the model that you learn in AP Psych. Like, oh, well, Alfred Adler and Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung all saw these clients and then they wrote papers about them. And yeah. like, you know, to, to say nothing of how deeply flawed from a, a social perspective a lot of their work was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and scientific, but more importantly from a social yeah. one. Um, and then I got to, you know, so I wanted to do research and I, I got to orientation and I was like, oh, you can do research in a lab. Like, that sounds super cool. And then I joined um, Eva Telzer's developmental social neuroscience lab. And within like 10 days, I was like, oh, I want to be a professor. And like, I realized, like, I really want to do research. Yeah. Um, and I would like to run my own lab. And I've kind of been doing that ever since. And, um, you know, Eva's lab is very industrious. And, um, you know, she gave, I think, really good advice that was like, you know, as a grad student, you should really, most of your time or a lot of your time should be spent doing things that are going to result in first author papers. Hmm. Um, and there are a, a tons of, there are a ton of qualifiers, but at the time I was so, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a developmental thing, like I internalized that so rigidly yeah. um, that I just spent so much time doing that to the point where candidly, by the time I got to grad school, I probably wasn't in the best uh, like mental state and had a rough first year, especially the first end of it. Um, mm. And my work-life balance was off. Like I, I, you know, loved to work and just did a ton of, I remember talking to someone, a faculty member when I was interviewing for grad school and they said, wow, like it's kind of amazing that you've uh, been, been productive the way you have as undergrad and I almost said to him I didn't but I almost said not really like I just I don't like to go out like I don't have a life outside of this which at the time was both something that I enjoyed but also unhealthy and things that feel good you know for you or that you like doing you should also probably moderate because uh, mm. if you kind of go in too far it could it could end up uh, not you know it could end up having some like side effects right that uh, that sounds like a cluster yeah <laughs> <laughs> which, which cluster would that be oh man i don't even the like i just care about work and i'm really driven and i think i think you see like a lot of that in like other professions too but it, i think in other professions like there's this work hard play hard mentality mm. for better for worse and some aspects of that is probably problematic as we've seen um with I guess one good part of it is that you do blow off steam and you have some semblance of balance and I just didn't for several years. So yeah. it helped professionally, <laughs> <laughs> but also meant I had a lot of work to do uh, yeah. over the course of grad school. And uh, I think like in more recent years, I've, I've like really amped up the work-life balance. And it's also nice because early on in grad school, I think I would definitely recommend if you can try to front load data collection, hmm. at, which most people do, but try to, you know, try to do it really hard and front load it. And um, to the extent possible, you know, not all, you know, universities and uh, colleges and, and, day, and departments and labs and areas are alike. Um, and uh, I think if you can try to like front load it, um, that's helpful too because mm. then I think like 
or like at least it worked for me to do that um and i will also acknowledge like, i've been immensely privileged um and i wouldn't be in the position i am without without that and and i you know i think that that's something that also has to be kind of acknowledged as well and also a thing that we i think as academics have have to try to make the playing field more equitable yeah. as well yeah i i I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it you know i i sort of hear hear both sides of everything here like i I hear like, oh, like this dude just like came into grad school like with exceptional amounts of skill and and just like curiosity and work ethic, and also like none of you know, there's also like the prerequisite, right? Like you have to be put in a position to succeed too. Yeah, right? for sure. Um, and you know, I'm sure from like the from your lab's perspective, it's like they caught lightning in a bottle and ran with it, right? But also like you had to be in the right position to actually put all that to the right to the right work too. Yeah, and of course, and and I liken it to climbing Mount Everest. Um, it takes a lot of skill and, dedica and, and dedication to climb Mount Everest, and it also takes like half a million dollars. <laughs> so you kind of need both. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this isn't to say like my parents were millionaires or anything, but like I'm, you know, often candidly struggle with with some of my identities. Like, you know, like I am an immigrant, but I'm white passing, and I grew up in the middle class, you know, household, and my dad was able to, you know, I didn't have to work a job in college because my dad said, you know, like you're working towards grad school and, you know, I can help out financially. Um, and then I think a part of that is I felt, I felt guilt. Um, maybe guilt's not the right word, but I felt like I had to make that investment worthwhile. And so I remember just like, there'd be nights where, you know, I'd go have dinner with my friends and then they would go out and be 10 PM. And then I would, you know, like study or, or work till like four or five, 6 AM. Yeah. Um, Jeez. And, like, that's not healthy. Like, don't do that. <laughs> you can... I, I also probably work very inefficiently, which is something I have to work on. Um, you can't see this, but John is, like, pointing at the microphone, like, waving his <laughs> finger right now. He's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, you know, and so, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, speaking to that, to that um, point a little bit that you were just making, you know, I know that historically, throughout your time in grad school mentorship has been like a really central theme in in your role like in other people's lives as they've been trying to come into science or be mm -hmm. a part of science yeah um and you know i i often see you know names of undergrads on your papers and and or like senior undergrads like um i i think it's really cool that you've incorporated mentorship the way that you have into your development as a scientist and i'm wondering if you could speak to that a bit. sure um i think that's i i there's very generous for you to say i think i only have a maybe a cup maybe a pair right now that i had an mm. undergrad um on the paper and one of them was actually she she spearheaded it so we're co first authors and she is nominal first author like she's first yeah. in the order and so like all credit goes to her um i i have like really um i value mentorship a lot because i got a really good graduate mentor and michael perino who's now um at washington university in st louis he's a postdoc there and he's uh, a close friend and I like could not be where I am without him I was so fortunate mm. to receive his mentorship and he was so patient um, and kind and that really left an impact on me because I saw grad school can be hard yeah. <laughs> and with any kind of like high achieving successful field that can attract some people who um, maybe will place the value of their careers over you know the well-being of others mm. Um, and that's true anywhere you go 
any per like most of these professions um and also some people are mean and so i think like michael helped navigate the um like human side of academia mm. you know especially because we come in with such weird conceptions of it going into it like oh it's a scientist who works alone in mm. a lab coat at night it's 3 a.m there's a single light shining over their bench or their desk or whatever and they're just working and 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 everyone is driven by science and they're critical and they're f but they're fair and that's yeah. you know um i think uh the case in some environments but it's not uh i don't think it's universal and they're um often pitfalls and so he helped me and this was you know i kind of saw how other people that i thought were better were more brilliant than i was or smarter or had the potential to be better scientists or were better scientists at that career stage and they didn't have the mentorship and then mm. it kind of played out a little differently for them and that really stuck with me and so that's something i've i've tried to do it was definitely a work in progress um and especially because like there were people coming from different backgrounds that were unlike my own and I was probably not the best mentor to them in the sense of like, I maybe didn't know exactly what they needed or could have been, um, not that I was uninvested, but like could have been more hands-on mm. in their training um, and development. And the other graduate students in my lab helped me realize that. So shout out to Adriana and Natalie mm. um, uh, who have like helped me grow in that re respect and who are also fabulous people to work with and brilliant scientists. Um, and you know i feel privileged to share uh, you know like lab space with them and to call them my colleagues um and so i've i've tried to kind of mentor someone through props every every year um oh and they're better grad mentors than i am so if you are an undergrad listening <laughs> and you're like oh which one should i work with you, you should hit them up before me if they have the space <laughs> um this is, this is uh <laughs> natalie saragosa harris and um this is adriana leal is that right mendez leal mendez leal right. yeah Cool. That's right. Yeah, so find them before you find John. That's right. Uh, but if yeah. if they're too busy, John's also a great mentor I, too. He can be your second rate option. I, I I try the best I can, but I also am you know uh, had 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 more work to do. Um, they, <laughs> no no oh no not in the sense that like I have more like lab work. I said like I I had more work to do as a mentor. They'd mm. be better. Um, and they, um, uh, and they kind of helped me see that. Just that you're thinking about it alone is, is I think, a real testament, though, because oftentimes I think, like, mentorship as a grad student is sort of billed by, like, you know, by either PIs or by the institution mm -hmm. as, like, you can help somebody get involved in research that will help them get into grad school, and their yeah. job is to help you do what you need to yeah. get done. And, like, just, it's almost like, it's often billed as, like, a just by offering the opportunity to work with you, you're doing your job. Yeah. And I yes. think it, it really, like, reflects, you know, I think it's a, a true testament to caring about the mentorship that, that you're, you know, it would be very easy to settle for that as the level. Yeah. The, the bar being for like, sure. okay, like, I'm going to find people to help me with my stuff, and by virtue of getting to be a part of our work, they'll benefit. And, like, that's it. Absolutely. Um, and there is a lot of mentorship out there that, that treats that relationship as sort of like that's where it stops yeah ab absolutely and and i think there's i think the fact that a lot of labs are siloed off in science contributes to this and mm. so when i was an undergrad i was not on twitter which can be a helpful <laughs> well can be a source of anxiety <laughs> a lot of things <laughs> but also it could be a very helpful resource and mm -hmm. um i was in like two labs and one of them had uh uh they had like different 
mentorship styles. And so I didn't get a lot of exposure. And so when I came I here to UCLA, I'm like, well, this is clearly how you mentor undergrads because that's just how it works. That's kind of what happens, right? Yeah. Like, this is the way to do it. And and then, like, I saw how Adriana and Natalie did I'm like, oh, I'm messing up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could do way more. Uh, you know, I could, I could be a lot better. And so um, they really helped me with that. And, and again, I can't, like, say how, like, I can't make a strong enough plug for how great it is to work with Adriana and Natalie and also Wesley, who joined the lab a year ago. Mm. And they, um, uh, I haven't seen how they mentored students, but it's also probably better than what I do, uh, than how <laughs> I do it. Um, and again, this is something, you know, we we laugh. I don't want to be ca- I don't want to be cavalier. It's something that I've grown and I think hope to continue to grow um, in doing. And uh, the other point I want to make is that like mentorship isn't, it's not it's more horizontal i think than it is vertical like i've learned stuff from my ras wesley just finished their first year in the lab and they gave an awesome uh first year project talk like i want to meet with them (laughs) and ask them like yo how like how did you design these slides it looks so great it's so clear like way better than mine was way better um and the same thing i talked to you know uh i i talked to like adriana who um it's like the second grad student in the lab after me, you know, made me aware of things in terms like of, of how to do science. Like I wasn't even wasn't even on my radar. And I was like, oh, well, this is just the way it's done. And she's like, no, I mean, there's a better way to do this. And I was like, wow, thank you. And so um, I was a little more stubborn than that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was just it's it's so, you know, it's a, it really is a horizontal and kind of two way street. But I, I do. It is really gratifying. I, you know, have one undergrad mentee who just accepted the position in Irvine that's virtual and then will be IRL well TBD with Delta but we'll hopefully hopefully be IRL soon I have to check in with her another one who she like was so green when she came in and then really grew into this like into just a great science and a great scientist and an intellectual and she got a job in the clinical area as an RA. I forget which lab. Um, Probably a good one. It's clinical. Yeah. No, we're (laughs) (laughs) and in, in, in a great lab. And she got in, she had like nine grad school interviews, got like four offers. Now she's going to UNC Greensboro. And um, I'm just so proud of her. And that's been so amazing. And they really help um, kind of teach me. And, and I think it is, I also do think, um, I wouldn't, I don't know that I'd call myself a mentor to other grad students because it feels self-congratulatory, but it's it's nice to be supportive to other grad students, mm-hmm. and that's been really re- rewarding as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it sounds, just the more I hear you talk about this, the more I'm hearing this common theme of, like, the interpersonal side of science is a lot of the reward in science, too. Yes. And... Um, you know, one thing I, I've sort of reflected on a bit within, like, my own development as a scientist has been that, like, there are so many really far out rewards. Like, everything is, like, really distant reward. You know, you, you work on a project, you develop an idea, you you do the data collection, you do the study, you, you then do a bunch of analyses, you get them all wrong, you go to stats consulting, you still don't know how you're doing it, <laughs> you go back to stats consulting again, and then you try to write a paper, and then it's rejected six times, and then you get it in somewhere, and then... It's like there's so many there's so many rewards that take so long to get and part of like 
and, you know, this is more of like an existential phrasing, but like yeah. part of like survival as a scientist comes from, I think, really having this interpersonal side of your job too. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you, you've derived a lot of reward from working with other people in a really personal way. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. And I think you, I think you have to, I was talking to another grad student and they have friends in industry and they said, you get like just your boss telling you that you did things right or that like you have like little check boxes and like in grad school you're like well i'm gonna apply for like 10 fellowships or like little like seed grants this year and submit a paper maybe two and uh maybe like one of those things will hit yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then and then and that'll be my reward and i think like um you know in certain places like have certain areas like have a review at the end of the year and they send you a letter and they tell you things that you're doing well and things that you need to work on. And, and I think that hopefully that's something that we can kind of change about academia. Mm. Um, I think academia, like the concept is really wonderful and there are places that are really wonderful, but it would also be naive to not acknowledge, you know, in, re- in recent years, this stuff has come out that like there are problems like there are any industry. And I think that um, we can we can help make it a lot better. And mm. we can kind of do their part to do that, um, especially if you have power, especially if you have privilege. Um, because that's what's going to kind of like get the ball rolling. Yeah. So what, what are the changes you'd like to see? I think uh, they're just, I think f- as a grad student financially, <laughs> um, uh-huh. you know, we should probably be a little bit better compensated. Um, I think that, and undergrads as well should also be properly compensated f- financially. I mm-hmm. think there should be more opportunities for uh, uh, undergrads earlier in the pipeline especially people from underrepresented communities um, who have a harder time breaking in a science or who like my dad my first year in Champaign said well you know you couldn't get surf the summer undergraduate research fellowship which is funny because Champagne is nowhere to surf uh, <laughs> but it's a funny name um, surfing in the Champagne oh that was dumb uh, you can edit that out <laughs> no we'll keep that in that's actually the only part we're keeping in. we're getting rid of everything else <laughs> great and uh (laughs) perfect and uh he said yeah like i can you know now it you know it helped that like rent was like 370 for a a month in champagne for a room that's like six times the size of my apartment right now and groceries are like you know i could pay for groceries with two candy bars and a coke i could just barter stuff in my apartment for other groceries and champagne um but obviously, like, I was immensely privileged to do that. And I knew people who, who couldn't do that. So we need more vehicles and mechanisms for that. And UCLA is wonderful, at least from, at least from what I've seen um, in that respect, is really good. So I think the financial compensation helps. I think there, there needs to, things need to happen at several structural levels. I think it has to happen in how the university is managed. Not, I say the university, but just schools in general, how, how they are managed and how money is allocated and look that's a hard job like I, there's a reason i'm not going in that field like i'm not saying that folks aren't trying or that like folks are selfish and they're you know but i think there 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 could be um a, a a reassessment of how we're budgeting um i think funding agencies could also recognize this and i think they are starting to which is really great um mm-hmm. and hopefully that's something that a- incrementally keeps going and i think pis can do that like if you are an imaging pi and you have um, and if you're fortunate enough to have like a healthy startup, consider instead of running, I don't, like I've thought about this, and I don't know how feasible this is. We'll see, hopefully in a couple of years, 
um, I'll be fortunate enough to have my own lab and, and maybe I'll come back and think, man, I was really naive on that podcast. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've talked to people about this who are really kind of like uh, upset about the fact that they might not be able to compensate their kind of like uh, men mentees for their labor the way they should be. And so I thought, you know, I've thought of one solution is you can use publicly available data, hmm. ABCD and HCP. Um, OSF has like data from smaller studies that, you know, will have measures that maybe are not include are not included on these mega studies. And it doesn't mean that you don't run your own studies um, mm -hmm. or get new data. It just means that maybe instead of running like 10, you run eight or nine and then you can pay a grad student for a year or like an undergrad for a year and doing your part. Um, hmm. I think that's one way to do it. I think obviously uh, genuine and legitimate anti-racism measures have to be kind of carried out. I know there was like a lot of like wind in the sails about a year ago. Um, and it seems like some of that, it, it, and, and this is like in, in so, so society in general, not just in academia, but it seems like s some of that has kind of, uh, uh, died down without like any real changes have been happening and you know i've seen people and and take it for what it's worth it's a twitter sample but people who are kind of discouraged at how amped up uh allies were to get to work um or people who needed to be allies who wanted to be allies and then just you know um how maybe they weren't able to do it and so that's something i think we have to consider hmm. um as well and i think there are like specific structural things that that we can do to get that um that we can do that to have a more um, equitable yeah so so providing more opportunities for everybody to be involved in science because historically there's a very select mm -hmm. population of people who have immense privilege who are then filtered into the system where yeah. everyone else is filtered out um, and a lot of that is based on either like overt biases as well as, sure. as more covert stuff just uh, you know offering positions without pay where yeah. some people can take for sure some people can take an undergraduate position where they're working 10 hours a week for free and a lot of people can't for sure so, some people can take on like a full postgraduate like year or two yeah. of working for for free yeah and um that's hard yeah it's, that that really does set it really does set up yeah. a, a lot of the system to operate around like that is like a foundational principle like the incentives are for labs to take people for free if they can yeah um and that's not ideal yeah in, and, in a lot of ways yeah and maybe that goes back to the structure of how we do science um like maybe we need more of like an allen institute type of model where we have like a mega you know like mega labs and there are pis under pis who have grad students and it's more hierarchical and more like a bell labs model yeah. I, I read like one story about how Bell Labs works, so maybe <laughs> if that's like a really dumb idea, like it, it's not my fault. <laughs> um, nice, <laughs> blame the story. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. and then and then having programs like having um, like programs and setting aside money to create opportunities for folks from underrepresented backgrounds um, as a PI have a quarterly or a semesterly or even weekly or biweekly talk about how you can improve the anti-racist policies in your lab and in your area and department and this could be things like reading something like how to be an how to be an anti-racist by ibrahim kendi um as a lab and talking about it and reflecting on it and being honest about you know maybe your own biases yeah. um and how you can correct them and also as as people who are allies not making it about you <laughs> not feeling so guilty that like 
oh no, I'm so sorry, I feel so bad. I did this thing that, you know, marginalized someone and it made me feel really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Homie, it's not about you. Yeah. And a lot of people are, are really guilty of that, and I'm sure I've done that in the past, too. So it just highlights that everyone has room to grow. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're coming up on the end of your time as a graduate student. What's next for you? These, I mean, you mentioned you'll be working. You'll, you won't be going too far. You'll be going across the hall, staying mm-hmm. in, I guess it's Pritzker Hall now, but staying, uh, staying in UCLA, going to yeah. work with Carolyn. Um, do you, do you see yourself building on the kinds of projects you've been doing? Do you see yourself pivoting into new areas? Like what is, you know, for some people, postdoc is like, I'm going to acquire some new skills that I don't already have. And for some people, it's, I'm going to dive deeper into this question I've been wa- I've been working on for a long time. And so how do you fit into either of those camps, really? That is a great question. I remember that's when I talked to Jen about potential postdoc advisors. Uh, you know, obviously everyone has to decide for themselves, but she gave insight and, you know, kind of how to pick that. And it really is on a tailored basis, I think, for my research. Um, oh, and also seeing what's available, right? Mm. Like, um, Carolyn offers me both, right? Like, I can kind of um, go more into the social neuro part of things, which I hadn't done. I, you know, done a little bit in grad school and undergrad and now can kind of lean more heavily into that. And also gain more kind of like formal training and computational methodologies, which is where you know, I want to go because mm. um, I think those tools are so invaluable and the goal is to build generative models or my goal is to build generative models of phenomena of interest that, you know, we can both learn from the features of the models, uh, you know, like learn, l- learn about the phenomena and, and uh, use features of those models as, as theoretical tools, but also if the models can kind of like mimic, if the models can simulate data that mimics real data in the real world, then you can use it also in a predictive way too. So um, I'll be doing more of, so I guess for the first part of this, we talked a lot about social, or a lot about emotion regulation. And now I have another line of, like I've had another line of work that's more about social decision-making involving close others. And I think I'm gonna go, um, I'm gonna go with that. or no, I don't think I know. Like that's what I proposed. <laughs> I have to do it now. Um, and leaning more into the social neuroscience of that. And I think um, I have a lot of work in a developmental context. And now maybe moving into, I don't want to say move out of a developmental context because if you ask me, everything is developmental. But um, doing you know doing something where we kind of expand, like looking at other forms of social decision making involving close others or involving familiar others Hmm. um which i think is an area that's ripe for investigation in the field and also looking at how i mean i would love to build like a unifying model of social decision making uh but that's really hard to do (laughs) (laughs) i've like talked to people about this and they're all like all right well how are you gonna do it bub (laughs) like (laughs) not that they're mean but they're just like you know it's good to have that but you know be realistic and, and and you know uh, don't be too pie in the sky. You know? Well, but that, to some extent, that's a common theme of the kinds of questions you've liked to ask to this point. Is like not necessarily like the pie in the sky, but like really taking on something big, like developing a typology of emotion regulation strategies, sure. or or taking um, like trying to create like a unifying theory of social decision making. Like, <laughs> I, I think on the one hand, like you can view that as like a pie in the sky, like oh, I. Yeah, maybe that'll happen. Probably not. We'll see whatever happens, right? But on the other hand, like, it's 
it, it can inform all of the steps that lead to yeah this this eventuality where like maybe maybe we get there maybe we don't but if that's sort of like the unifying principle of your work like that's pretty cool yeah i i, I agree and i think that like my expectation is it's really hard to do and science is difficult and what are the odds that like you know one person or one lab or this one pi or group of pis is going to do it um it's obviously as we talked about earlier a team effort like in the sense that the whole field has has, has contributed so well, that's what I will always strive for and aim for. I think realistically, what will happen is, um, maybe I maybe I get more people talking about it, or maybe I get more people um, trying to do it. Um, and there are people that like have done similar questions. I think more in decision making in an asocial context. Like, there's a whole math psych literature mm. that I should probably be a little bit more familiar with. Um, but it's yeah, I think, like, the practical bit is is going to be, like, um, just getting the ball rolling. And then you kind of pass the baton on from someone else. Or someone takes it from you yeah. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're, you're coming up on sort of, like, getting to the top of your own Everest here, as you sort of described it <laughs> earlier. And there are lots of people who are either maybe like halfway up the mountain right now or mm. sort of like at the base of the mountain looking at it being like oh my gosh i'm about to start this or like yeah. standing uh, you know 50 feet away from the mountain looking at it being like maybe this is a mountain i'm going to be willing to climb yeah what, what kind of advice do you have for people who are sort of earlier at the stage of development um as mm. everything is developmental right um That's <laughs> people right. who are people who are earlier on in their careers as scientists who are either thinking about going to grad school or currently applying or just now starting or like you know, part of the way through and sort of thinking about where they want to take things? That's a good question. I think um, having an idea of what you want to get out of it or, like, things that you could get out of it are really important. Um, getting as much data as you can to know what life as a graduate student is like. Mm. Uh, what are your options for a career after graduate school? What are the things we do on a day-to-day -day basis? Um more and more as I get like further you know like as I move f f further along it feels like I spend more time answering emails mm. um, about like different things like if you know every other day it's like oh IRB renewal thing came up or like you know maybe getting a review request or for a paper which is really cool it's really exciting um, it, it feels like I you know like my first year in grad school I could just kind of like sit in a room and you know instead of not going to class I could just like work on science if I wasn't doing stuff for class so I think n like knowing what people do on the day-to-day -day, on the day-to-day -day basis uh knowing what your goals are what you hope to get out of it get as much information as you can from as many different people mm. I picked everyone's brain I could as an undergrad and I got a bunch of different data points and eventually I was able to kind of see this this mean trend and I'm like oh cool that's what I want but also appreciated the fact that oh person a she had this path mm. and that's quite that's not quite going to be like my path uh, but maybe that's the more common path. But person B, they had that path. And even though that's not, you know, like the the modal or mean path, the like most common way of getting there, that's a path forward and you can do it. Um, and I also, I, I always hedge any kind of feedback or anytime I talk about my experiences with people, I say, you know, I got into a lab within a month of go going to college. I graduated in three years. I stayed over the summers. I knew this is exactly what I wanted. I worked really hard. I joined a new lab that had a lot of room for uh, upward mobility as an undergrad. Um, that's not to say if your career is not like mine, you aren't going to succeed. It just means like this is one track or one kind of path through the forest that 
I went through that may work for you, but you may be at a different starting point. You might have to take a different path. And there are many paths mm -hmm. to get um, here. So I think, think I think keeping that in mind and be ready to have a support network. Um, parts of grad school are fun and parts of grad school are really crappy. And if you come into a part that's like, you know, crappy or beyond the intrinsic, like the inherent, like this is kind of the way it has to be or, um, you know, part, parts of grad school, like if you find yourself in a toxic relationship with a colleague or God forbid an advisor, um, or you're not at like the best institution for you, like recognizing that early on and doing your best to change that is really important too. And I think that's becoming more accepted. Um, and then I think senior folks like us can also help nor nor normalize that, make sure that that's, that that's okay to do. Gosh, you made me feel so old just now. <laughs> senior folks like us. Hey, but you're I right. I see some gray hair. I know, I know. There is, yeah, it's, it's coming in the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> I was so young once. Yeah, and I think you're totally right. And I often sort of like, for myself, I reflect like, maybe not, you know, just like observing everybody's experience that I know um, in, in science, in psychology science, because that's really all I know to this point. I, I feel like 99% of grad student happiness comes from how their relationship is with their advisor mm, yep. um, like having having like a strong relationship with that person or having at least like a mutual understanding of what your roles are going to be and how you're going to navigate this dynamic is so important and yep. and you know it seems just like you were talking about before like having mentorship that helps you get where you want to be going is so important yeah and and nobody nobody gets out the other side without having the right kind of mentorship sure. or if not nobody, but it's just, it becomes su such a heavier lift to For do sure. that. And, and no, and also learning about like what kinds of folks, um, like there were tons of stuff that because I come from an immigrant family, like I, this was more true when I was going to undergrad, but also a bit to grad school that I kind of didn't like, there were certain things that I wasn't aware of that like I would have to deal with uh, being, you know, coming from an immigrant family compared to people who didn't. Mm. Um, and so finding people who are similar to you, who have been on the journey mm -hmm. uh, and establishing a network with them, but also learning like, look, you know, if you are an immigrant, you know, like you're going to you might have to deal with these things, right? Like if you're a, an international student prepared to deal with X, Y, and Z, I think it's just like really important. And the other thing is you belong there. Like imposter syndrome sucks. I had it like cripplingly bad, like in undergrad, in my first couple of years of grad school, I still have it, but now it's. It's, it's in remission, like it's, it's under control. Um, but you belong here, especially if you're listening to this podcast, like this isn't, I don't know, this isn't uh, like NPR's Planet Money where we get like millions of, I was gonna say Joe Rogan, but I, I don't think I like Joe Rogan. Uh, so I don't wanna, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. Um, I do not like Joe Rogan, let me be clear. <laughs> Uh, what are you talking about? We have 60 million listeners every, every yeah, episode. Yeah, like, but if you are listening to this podcast, like you, you, you almost certainly belong in grad school. Like whether you wanna be, is a different question that only you can answer, but you belong here and you were motivated and smart enough to kind of get there. Snaps to that, yeah. yes. I um, promise you, no matter what anyone else tells you, I promise you. I love that, I, and I and I totally agree. All of our listeners are the best people I know. I don't know any of you, but that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the one of the themes that you mentioned here um, was like essentially like there's there's like this distribution of like how people navigate their way through science and there's like this mean trend that you can sort of pick up on and there's tons of variability around that yeah. and sort of like noticing you know okay what are the, some of the commonalities that you know on the whole most people tend to sort of 
yeah. fall into these commonalities, right? But then there's also like tons of variability in how I can navigate my own specific situation. Mm-hmm. There are obviously outliers, people who do things different ways. Um, I think they, again, just sort of like speaks to this main point you were making about get lots of data on everybody's experience so that you can sort of pick up on like, what are the common patterns? What are the trending patterns? And what are the things that like around the edges, like you can modify to your to fit your own needs? Yeah. yeah. And if no one, and of course, no one will be just like you, but if no one is really not just like you, like if you feel like you're, oh, I'm the, literally, I there's no close comp, be the first one if you want to. And mm. no, it'll be a lot of work. And again, if you don't want to do that, like that's also cool because sometimes it can take a toll and no problem there. But like one of the great things of science is like we celebrate trailblazers of the past. Mm. Um, we should find better ways to celebrate them <laughs> or like find, you know, like better people to celebrate. Cause there are, are, are folks in that history. Sometimes we alluding to the fact that sometimes we like, you know, like I think there's still a lecture named the Fisher lecture or whatever. It's kind mm. of a problem because he was a eugenicist, but uh, <laughs> I actually think they, they recently, they changed it, but you get the idea. Like we need to uplift, you know, like um, voices that haven't been up, uplifted in science. But the point being that science is replete with examples of people who had a really hard time and they blaze a trail. Mm. Um, and you can do that too. Mm, and so it might be really hard and um, like it may feel impossible. And if it, if it is impossible to you, like you just cannot do it, that is okay. But do not be afraid to go mm. for it. So look at the distribution of what exists and, and see where you fit along that. And if it's nowhere along that, you also say to yourself, well, I'm gonna be the one to start a new trend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like chart a new path. Um, blind blind courage like just like naive energy especially when you're younger will take you a long way like because if you know if it's almost like don't tell me the odds because if you don't know like how uncommon a certain thing is to do like you might if you know how uncommon it is you might get discouraged Mm. but if you don't you'll just be like oh well i'll do i have to do all these steps this is totally normal (laughs) and i'll just do them um so yeah yeah awesome well, on that note, I think that's a great place for us to end. I mean, I kind of wish we could have maybe seven and a half more hours of your time because there's so much more that we could talk about. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always super fun to talk to you. And it's it's fun. That, you know, I actually got to see you in person this time. This is oh, pretty cool. It's um, great. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. we can do more of this. And um, we'll have to pick a new place to get beer. But otherwise, I know. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. we'll be good. We didn't even get to talk about the MLB trade deadline. I coming know. Up. I like, know. Oh, my. Oh. How could we go to missed opportunity? The MLB trade deadline, the um, the NHL expansion draft. I know. Oh, man. The finals, Giannis. Giannis. Oh, man, that was fun. Giannis. I mean, as a, as a Midwesterner, I don't know how you feel about the Bucks, but um, I As a Bulls fan, I think if it were, like, the Pistons winning, I'd be pretty salty. Ah, okay. But, like, okay. I have a soft spot for Wisconsin. Okay. Um, and Giannis, like. It's hard to hate that guy, man. Yeah. It's pretty hard to hate him. Even if you were on, like, the Pistons, or the, I hate the Celtics, but even if you were on the Celtics, I'm like. Or the Pistons, I'd be like, man, good for you. Like, I would still, I'd still like him. Like, yeah. I'd still be really happy for him. Yeah. 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 That was pretty cool. Yeah. Amen. All right. Well, it's been really fun to have you. Yeah. Again. Thank you for having me. That was really great. That's really fun. like to hear more you can subscribe to this podcast feed on itunes google play soundcloud stitcher a number of other places it's also available on the psychology in action website